Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemming. Coming to you from the studios of Radio 2 SER in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. As the economy hits the brakes, with lockdowns forcing workers to stay home, stimulus is back on the agenda. The federal government has announced a disaster package that it argues is targeted and proportionate for affected workers and businesses. But there's a broad coalition who are calling for a revival of the JobKeeper program to keep the economy going while employees are forced to stay home. To discuss all this, I was joined earlier by Mary Aldred, CEO of the Franchise Council of Australia, Peter Doherty, Assistant Professor in the Economics Group at UTS, and Stephen Hamilton, Assistant Professor of Economics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and Chief Economist of the Blueprint Institute. I guess we'll start with a a quick overview of the litany of packages that are currently available to support those in lockdown. So I guess I might start with you, Stephen. What are the current stimulus packages that are available for individuals? Yeah, so there's there's a range of different supports at the state level, but the sort of flagship one that applies nationally to anyone with a, a who is in a hotspot is this uh, disaster relief payment. So it, it's around six hundred dollars a week for you know, a full-time worker or someone who's lost more than 20 hours a week. And it's half that for someone who's lost fewer than 20 hours or between 20 and eight hours a week. So that's, you know, that's that's reasonable in the sense that it's a roughly the same as what the job seeker payment with the coronavirus supplement was uh, in, in, you know, this time last year. So in that sense, you know, it's similar to the level of support provided previously, but it is less than job keeper, which was about 700 and uh, $50 a week. So those payments are, are available to people who've lost hours as a result of the pandemic. So even if you've only lost part of your hours, you still get eligibility, which I think is really good. Um, but it isn't available to uh, workers that still attached to their employer, right? So, you know, it, like work workers who haven't lost hours, but may, you know, so it doesn't sort of keep the worker attached to the firm as JobKeeper did. Uh, and the other thing is it isn't it isn't going to people on JobSeeker. So if you're in receipt of a government payment or, or youth allowance or something like that, you don't get anything. And so there are a lot of JobSeeker recipients whose hours have been cut, you know, who usually work part-time. And so they will have experienced to decrease their income. And there are around, I think it's around 275,000 people in Australia who have uh, JobSeeker today who weren't there pre-pandemic. So there's a lot of extra people on JobSeeker and those people uh, can't look for work in a lockdown. So, you know, their income uh, is a lot lower than it would be had they found a full-time job. So I think there's a good argument for for trying to extend support to them. There's a lot to unpack in there. And before we get into uh, the nitty gritty, I guess I'll also ask, there's also support for businesses. And what does that support currently look like? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite good. So it's similar to the cash flow boost that that businesses got during the very earliest weeks of the pandemic uh, in 2020. So it's 40% payroll coverage up to a cap with a with a basic limit. And I think it's businesses with turnover less than 50 million. So that, that covers a large number of small and medium enterprises. Uh, 
they they only get that support if they if they don't change their headcount, so they can't lay people off, which I think is good in terms of encouraging them to retain workers. But as I'm sure Mary will attest, uh, you know the the massive hole that the lockdown is leaving in businesses' balance sheets, uh, you know now that it's been going longer than a month. Uh, is not going to be filled by 40% of their payroll. Uh, I think a lot of businesses will be suffering revenue losses significantly greater than that. And so, you know, while that support was good for the short term, it's probably inadequate for the for the longer term. So, Mary, we know that for just one slice of uh, the, the franchisees that you deal with, for example, like the retail sector, we know that they're losing an estimated, I think it's $2 billion a week, according to one of the retail peak bodies, as a result of these lockdowns. You're somebody who's got who's been in contact, I'm sure, with a lot of your franchisees. What are they telling you about the impact of the current lockdown? It's just, it, it's so diverse, the impact, but there's also some very commonality, uh, points of commonality as well. Uh, you know, I've been on calls in the last week with a, a funeral director who says, you know, you've got no idea what it's like to have to ring a family at seven o'clock the, the night before a funeral and say you've got to um, narrow down the, the people that can attend to, to 10 people. And he's a small business right through to a cafe owner who owns a couple of cafe outlets in Sydney who was saying to me his worst performing store is 88% down on turnover from last year. His best performing store is 54% um, down in turnover. You know, the day before he spoke to me, he said, we did 100 bucks for the day just in takeaways, obviously. So... There's, there's a very diverse uh, spread of, of what different business issues people are experiencing, but the common point here is they're all under immense emotional and, and, and mental strain. Small business people are often the ones that take care of, obviously, their staff, their family, they put back into the community. There's a big burden of responsibility on them that they feel at the best of times, and right now they're really having to carry the load. What is the difference for your members between the current stimulus package offered by the Commonwealth and the state and JobKeeper? Look, I think if I had to pick the the real differential here, it would be that the emergency hardship payments that have been made in, in recent weeks are very welcome. And if we were dealing with an outbreak and government lockdown that was going to last a matter of weeks, that might be sufficient just to get people through. But the, the more we're watching this unfold, particularly in New South Wales, I think the more all of us realise this is not going to be a matter of weeks. It's going to be months, possibly even until the end of the year, until this outbreak gets under control. Small businesses are not able to uh, to keep their head above water for that long, particularly in those most affected industries like hospitality and retail. JobKeeper, it's been fine-tuned and improved since it was first rolled out. We've had two goes of it now. There's a, a real awareness and familiarity with uh, with JobKeeper uh, among the uh, the broader community, unions, employees, industry groups. It's certainly something that can be further developed and improved upon, but there is a, a level of trust uh, and identification that it's, it's there to help and get people through. And so that's why we're calling for JobKeeper 3.0 this week, writing to the Prime Minister, asking him to take it to National Cabinet um, and get the ball rolling. We need a team effort here, state and federal governments working together to help get small business and retailers through this incredibly difficult time. It, it seems to me that that a good principle of public policy is that when you have a program that um, works reasonably effectively, 
um, that, that really you should stay with that program. You might want to make modifications to it as you learn more about the program. But it seems reasonably clear that JobKeeper was pretty effective at um, maintaining both um, employment relationships in 2020 and then into 2021, um, and also providing a, um, an underpinning for aggregate demand so that uh, households had some money to spend. Of course, there were some businesses that were closed during the various lockdowns we had, and so where you could spend that money was limited. But nonetheless, that flow of income support to households meant that um, there was a, a, a flaw to the level of aggregate demand we have in the economy. And we also learned a lot about um, the strengths and weaknesses of JobKeeper. We've heard a bit about the weaknesses um, in terms of uh, companies that maybe didn't really need JobKeeper and um, haven't been required to pay it back. But uh, it, it, given that we understand how it works and we've learned these lessons, it seems to make sense to sort of stay with a program that you understand better and that you know is effective. You may make modifications, but I think there's a strong case for good public policy to kind of follow Something that, that really Treasury that pushed last year was in the panic of the early pandemic, we didn't want to have to put a huge amount of resources into setting up whole new systems, new programs, new networks, new channels of transmission, yada, yada, right? So that was a kind of a key principle, I think, in, in the, the establishment of the programs last year. Uh, and, and I think Peter's right in, in wanting to rely on those again because we know they work, right? So the question for me would be, when I look at JobKeeper, I think it was a pretty cumbersome scheme, you know, so there were a few problems. One was how do you judge eligibility? Right. So we were never judged eligibility in real time. So in the first six months of JobKeeper, firms had to forecast their re revenue for the next quarter. And that's how we got all of these overpayments because firms said, yes, I expect revenue to be down. And then in, in fact, it went up. Right. <laughs> so you get the kind of Harvey Normans of the world you know, profiting from, from JobKeeper. Uh, but then in the second half of JobKeeper, they moved to retrospective. So they said, okay, well, if your revenue was down last quarter, then you get it this quarter. But still, that means that it's lagging three months, right, compared to where you are today. So, you know, if you were to reintroduce JobKeeper, you would have to kind of deal with that problem. And I don't know if it means in real time, every fortnight, businesses said, my current revenue is down by a third compared to pre-pandemic. You know, JobKeeper was a little strange in that the government paid businesses per worker a subsidy and then those businesses were forced by law to pay that subsidy out to employees, right? So it was a it was a, it was a kind of a strange system, right? And that does limit the flexibility businesses have. So there is an argument, I think, for doing something equivalent, which would be you know the current cash flow boost, which is forty percent of payrolls, just increasing that to eighty or one hundred percent of payrolls. And firms still don't get it if they don't retain their workers, right? But what it does is it sort of avoids having to redesign JobKeeper to, to make it fit for purpose. And it, I, I think, retains a lot of the good features, uh, which is that firms have an incentive to keep workers on and firms are protected from, you know, the big hole in their, their revenue source. With that said, though, isn't the appeal of redesigning JobKeeper as much as anything a, a uh, about public trust in the name of JobKeeper. You know, we've seen the effectiveness of JobKeeper in keeping people around. Why do we have, why are we building in new frameworks when we've got, as you've said, an existing framework that kind of worked and uh, of equal importance, people looked at and they said, this kind of works. There's, there's that trust aspect. 
It's kind of amazing how, uh, and I guess Mary could go, go to this from, from her sort of members' uh, perceptions, but JobKeeper has a tremendous brand recognition. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and, and even if you see, you know, you have Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, and Dominic, Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales treasurer, both saying, let's bring back JobKeeper. Not so much focusing on the detail, but just the notion of this thing called JobKeeper, whatever it is. So um, no matter what the government does to help businesses, just call it JobKeeper. <laughs> would be one. Would be one. Would, would would be one approach. Mostly, it is the familiarity with the the model. There's a trust in the model. It works. I like to say that you know last year JobKeeper didn't just save livelihoods; it saved lives. I think mentally and emotionally, people are really running on thin reserves at the moment, particularly those in the community that are associated with small business, either working in a small business or running a small business. And so, look, there's different ways that um, we can help get people through. I think those targeted cash payments for a matter of weeks. Uh, would do the job, but I think we're in here for the medium term in terms of containing this current Delta uh, outbreak. And so our preference is to see a reinstatement of JobKeeper 3.0. Do you think um, that the current spread that we've seen in New South Wales could have been mitigated with more stimulus and financial incentives made available earlier so that people didn't, particularly people in precarious uh, labour situations, didn't feel that they had to keep going to work? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think um, one thing business owners tell me is they just want clarity and certainty. So perhaps rather than saying, look, if you'd like to stay open, stay open. Um, if you'd like to close, close. Of course, in a, an economic environment where everybody's really stretched, you're going to try and uh, uh, and keep afloat and keep operating. Whereas if the government say, no, look, you've, you've got to close, you can do you know, click and collect, but we are going to provide a backup stimulus support for you. Um, I think those are some of the lessons that, that might have been learned. But again, um, this is the first time we've gone through something as contagious as the Delta variant. So um, these lessons are being learned as, as we go through this. Unfortunately, there's there's a big cost and, and consequences when, when things do go wrong. So, I mean, my, my view was, and I was quite firm on this at the time, that it was the right thing to withdraw JobKeeper and the coronavirus supplement of JobSeeker in March, insofar as the economy, you know, the pandemic phase one had subsided and the economy had recovered. I mean, the job market was roaring back in the first quarter of this year. And so I think it was perfectly prudent to suggest that stimulus ought to have been withdrawn. I think that's right. The, the failure, I think, was not replacing it with something else that would be more flexible, right? And that could be switched on and off and targeted to local areas uh, that would suit a re-emergence of, you know, outbreaks or, you know, local lockdowns for temporary periods. And now the government has actually put in place such a system now, right? At least the early phases of one. Um, but it, it sort of did so playing catch up. It, it may not be a full national lockdown, but we're going to have local local outbreaks, local lockdowns that are going to need to be dealt with through this year. And so we need the fiscal supports that can respond best to those conditions. Uh, and and New South Wales is calling for something that lasts longer than a month. And, and I think we need to do more to, to cater to that situation. The phrase used around the GFC um, for effective government stimulus, so timely, targeted and temporary. If you think about, for example, today's New South Wales case numbers uh, being 
172, it looks like the temporary aspect of this might be challenged at the moment. Does the current plan before us, the current New South Wales stimulus package, fit that criteria or are we going to see further adjustments and potentially more stimulus needed to keep the economy going? The, the budget absolutely has the capacity to fill the, the hole that the, the lockdowns are leaving. Uh, if you look back to October when the budget uh, was was delivered last year, it, it forecast a really significant deficit and between October and May, the, the number was you know improved dramatically, right? Because I think the government thought that the worst of the pandemic was behind us i would would i i've got a lot of, actually got a lot of faith in the, the the economic team i think the treasurer has done pretty well through the pandemic in terms of the economic supports and he's shown a willingness to throw away ideology and and support the economy where it's been needed and and i hope and i expect that that will be forthcoming now so i i would i, I would say you know, the, the key lesson of the pandemic is be willing to support workers, be willing to support businesses, uh, and doing that in the short term may cost money, but it pre- preserves the economic capacity uh, of our society and helps us rebound much quicker when the lockdown's left. So I think that applies today just as much as it did last year. Um, it seems to me the big question is whether the federal government has the, um, the ticker, as it were, to keep... Um, spending large amounts of money for sustained periods with the impact that that's likely to have on the level of government debt. Um, I think that is a question that at some point is going to come up. Um, And there, I I think that we still have room to move. Um, Notice that the level of government debt was forecast in in this year's budget papers uh, in terms of net debt to peak at about 50% of GDP. And that's very significant. Um, but uh, if you look at what other countries are having to do, I still think we have some room to move there. So that doesn't deal with the issue of targeting, but it does deal with the issue of whether we have the overall resources to keep um, providing support to firms and, um, and uh, households. And, and I think probably what we need to do is to develop an exit strategy from that debt over time. But I think what we shouldn't do is to let that scare us into not providing the appropriate support that needs to be delivered over the next 12 months or so while we get vaccinated and while we um, get to a point where we don't need to have these lockdowns anymore. This type of stimulus does present, like anything, there are repercussions from throwing so much money into, into stimulating the economy, such as debt, but also the risk of inflation begins to rise. It, How do we balance it in terms of how do we keep an eye on debt, which is for many people, you know, a bit of a a watchword for profligacy? The net debt is looking to peak at about 50% of GDP, which relative to other countries, which sounds like a lot, right? But relative to other countries, it's frankly nothing. We have still among the lowest uh, public debt of any country on earth. Net debt to GDP depends on two things, right? It it depends on how much debt you have, but it also depends on what your GDP is. (laughs) Right. So an economy that's not growing very quickly or that has a giant hole in it because you didn't plug the gap during the pandemic isn't going to be growing very quickly. And that that economy is not going to be raising much tax revenue in order to pay down that debt. Right. So if you look at the U.S., versus Australia, the US didn't manage its pandemic well uh, at all. You know, we, ha- we have more than half a million people dead. You know, we have massive 
unemployment, there is a very large void in the US economy that has not been replaced, right? The, the employment to population ratio has plateaued significantly below where it was pre-pandemic, whereas in Australia, we've gone right back to where we were, right? So there's just a huge chunk of the American economy missing, right? They let something like 750,000 US businesses fail, uh, mainly because they didn't manage the pandemic properly, but also because the, the, the support wasn't particularly uh, generous or targeted. Uh, and that's capacity that doesn't just come back, right? It's gone and it takes years and years for all of that economic activity to return. So yes, we should think there is some limit to what governments can do over the long term, but I'm much more concerned about protecting the capacity of the economy in the short run to rebound quickly so that we can repay that debt over the longer term. The, the, the kind of inflation that we're going to need to be worried about um, here is a demand-driven inflation. Um, and the structures we have at the moment for thinking about inflation in terms of the Reserve Bank's inflation targeting framework essentially deal with that. I mean, there's part of my mind that is now worried about pontificating at all uh, about what happens as a result of an event like this because it's so unique. But the fact that um, we're pumping all this money into the economy does worry some people in terms of its uh, potential to increase inflation in the future. But if inflation were to rise outside their band of 2 to 3%, the way they conduct monetary policy would automatically raise interest rates, both short-term interest rates and the new target on longer-term uh, interest rates, such as three-year um, Commonwealth government securities, and they would begin to, to rein that in. So it, it's possible that we could see a bit of inflation creep back if things went really well, but um, uh, it's not really a major problem that we should be concerned about, in my view. So, Mary, how do you think this lockdown is going to be felt by these franchisees, you know, some of whom have gone through big downturns in the past year? And do you think that there are other measures needed to keep them afloat that go beyond just stimulus? Yeah, it, it depends on which industry sector you're operating in. So obviously, you know, there's some industry sectors like freight and logistics uh, with people posting uh, a lot of things online, uh, click and collect and, and postal deliveries that are, are actually going pretty well. But there's most other businesses that we're dealing with that are just going through an incredibly hard time. Uh, I think we've got to make sure that there's support into the medium term here. You know, for example, retail premises are paying 100% of their their rent in most cases at the moment, not able to operate uh, or even click and collect their, their turnover is dramatically down on what it would be business as usual. So I think we need to uh, think outside the square here, um, get in behind businesses because if it rolls on uh, for too many more weeks where they don't have that adequate financial backing behind them, we are going to see some mass business failures. It'll be a catastrophic industry event. And I think particularly with New South Wales, you know, we, we could well be seeing this unfold uh, until um, towards the end of the year where it, it finally gets under control. Um, in terms of the outbreak. So we need a long-term plan for small business survival here. Mm. Pandemics are a very strange situation um, and they require a big rethink in how we, we usually do things in a recession, right? So, And we were learning over time and so was the government, right? And so was the Treasury Department and the Reserve Bank. We we're all making it up as we went along, right? Um, but we've been doing this for 16 months now and we've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, and, and one thing I think that's clear is 
the, the economy doesn't function when you're in lockdown. It just doesn't. You know, you freeze the economy, right? And no, no, your stimulus doesn't work. You, you hand people cash. Uh, they, they don't go out and spend it because they can't. It's illegal, right? <laughs> so you, you have to provide really broad support of a nature that you just wouldn't in a normal recession. Like you wouldn't have wage subsidies in a normal recession, but we do that in a pandemic, right? So uh, this notion of being willing to do things that you wouldn't normally do is, I think, really important uh, in, in pandemic times. And that's still true today. Uh, and, I, and I think that there are people, there are probably a lot of people in Southwest Sydney, for example, who are, you know, uh, Uber drivers or, you know, they deliver Uber Eats meals or something, or, you know, they work in retail or they work in uh, food service or, you know, all of these, these areas and, and, and they probably shouldn't be working, but they can't afford not to. Right. So, you know, they're the kinds of people I think who we do need to target with, with support. We need to give people the means and incentive not to go out uh, and, 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 you know, spread, spread, spread the virus. I also wonder one group of people who I really worry about, who I think are completely missed in all of the fiscal supports are sort of undocumented workers, right? If you're a, if you're a kind of a, a visa overstayer or, you know, you're, you're not meant to be here uh, and, and yet you are, uh, how do you get by if, if you can't work uh, your cash in hand job that you otherwise could have? Uh, and, and, you know, I know the government probably doesn't want to support these people financially, but uh, we should be pragmatic and say the last thing we want is people out and about, you know, um, transmitting the virus. And so trying to target these sort of hard to target individuals, I think is kind of important. And I mean, I don't have any easy answers, but I think we should be quite pragmatic about it. I think we should also be explicit about something that has been implicit in the discussion so far, and that is um, about equity. I mean, um, it, yes, it's important to think about the um, health of the economy and, and which parts of the economy are suffering and which aren't, but there is just a, a compassion question um, that's related to the fact that we need people to stay at home in order for the greater public good of the virus not being spread to be achieved. And it isn't fair to impose a cost on people who are reliant on not being at home to earn their income um, so that the rest of us benefit. So, you know, I'm able to do my job so far by being online and my income keeps flowing. Well, you know, there's a case for me being prepared to give up a portion of that income for people who just can't do that. Um, and it's an equity question as much as an economic question. And there's been a lot of talk of economics, but I think the fairness of looking after people that just suffer because of having to stay at home is one that we should speak more about, in my opinion. I mean, you may be surprised that an economist would say that, but um, I think it's important. <laughs> That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Mary Aldred, Peter Doherty, and Stephen Hamilton. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Thanks for listening.